Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourself. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. <laughs> G'day and welcome to another democracy sausage full of meat and protein and perhaps a few things not quite so appetising. As we record this, Federal Parliament is back for another four sitting weeks over the next five weeks. And amazingly, these are the first such sittings where the PM will be called to account, asked to answer questions on the $660 million taxpayer-funded car park scheme, something that uh, revealed the government of the day treating public funds like they belong to his political party. So the PM now under more pressure than he's used to, probably more than at any time since he's taken the job, and that includes the 2019 election when, I guess, No one expected him to win, so there was a certain freedom that came from that, and of course he did win. He's going to face some important questions this week. It'll be interesting to see whether that uh, whether that changes anything, how he how he responds to that, and uh, whether uh, the opposition gets any cut through with it. Now, I could go on about this, but let me just car park those thoughts for a moment and introduce our excellent panel: Doctors Chris Wallace and Maria Tafaga, or Maria Tafaga, I should say. Chris, of course, is a regular guest. She's a historian, she's an ANU visiting fellow, and she's associate professor at the University of Canberra's 5050 by 2030 Foundation. She's also a sharp political strategist, as can be seen from her recent book, How to Win an Election. And, of course, Maria Teflaga is a political scientist extraordinaire. She's also a staple on Democracy Sausage, albeit that this year she's been attending to higher duties following the birth of her first child. So, I'm always glad to lure her back to the hot plate from time to time, and I'm glad we've been able to do so today. Welcome, Maria. I do enjoy a good barbecue. And, you know, the the hat, the, the J in my name has caused quite a few issues for me on, on radio. Perhaps most famously one time when I was on a, a different radio program and the uh, the host was having a, an awful hard time with my name and kept mangling it and then the crowning glory was um, like the music to sort of segue between the next guest 
they had forgotten to turn their microphone off and all you could hear was them just going, Marija, like just still <laughs> still not able to manage the J. So That's so right. Well so so just to be clear job. on it, just to be clear on it, it's it's the standard spelling of Maria but with a J just before the final A because that is um, Slovenian, is it? Yeah, it's hmm. so yeah, it's it's basically the the Balkan spelling of Maria. And the J is a Y. So right. um yeah, exactly. So in other Slavic languages they just have a different vowel to manage that Y sound. So so there you go. That's all it is. There's no there's no there's no great secret beyond beyond that. That's right. But we just sort of strangely if this isn't a contradiction in terms, kind of anglicize it anglicize it from I suppose an Italian name. Which is yeah, yeah, from, from Maria to Maria, yeah. yeah, indeed. Now, look, let's get to um, let's get to some of the meat in the barbecue, as it were. Uh, John Hewson was famous for, and he said this on this podcast uh, for describing fight back um, as the longest political suicide note in Australian history. Of course, that was an extremely detailed set of policies that he took to the '93 election as leader of the opposition against Paul Keating, and failed. And this week, or last week, I should say, Labor has sort of gone about stripping itself of a whole bunch of policies that it took to the 2019 election, Chris. Um, so in a sense, I guess Labor's taking that, that same lesson, uh, uh, learnt it the hard way through the, the 2019 election, took a whole bunch of things like negative gearing, uh, changes to capital gains tax, uh, the franking credits uh Policy, which of course got misrepresented scurrilously by the Liberals as a death tax, um, and and you know Clive Palmer and others who who sort of weighed into all of that, uh, and of course a, a very ambitious climate policy as well, or what seemed ambitious at the time, but now seems pretty mainstream in terms of what the world's doing. That is a forty five percent cut by twenty thirty. But uh, Anthony Albanese is um has has, has cleared the decks effectively. Um, what what are your thoughts about that? Highly intelligent move by Albo, and um, I, I got to say it's part of a, an overall picture where uh, the the opposition leader is trying across the board to really professionalise and lift the opposition's operations. He's got an awful lot of flack this week from Labor loyalists uh, and a lot of progressive Labor fellow travellers because it looks like a very regressive policy move. But Anthony Albanese understands deep in his bones the point, the point that Gough Whitlam, as opposition leader, made uh, at that famous Victorian Labor conference when he declared only the impotent are pure. Mm. And what Whitlam meant by that was it doesn't matter how pure and progressive your policy is, if you can't get into government, you can't do anything. If you never enact them, what, what's the use of them? Exactly. Mm. So when, and when Anthony Albanese did this, I thought, this is a guy who's actually thinking very carefully about how to win and trying to maximise his chances. It's always a balancing act, though, isn't it? Because you do have to have a story for your base. I mean, you, rep, you are a political party for more reasons than just electing a particular coloured team. It's, it's about the values you represent. So political parties need to be true to a certain set of core values. Absolutely. And, I, and no one could accuse Anthony Albanese of not being true to those values. But I think people who are, who are wringing their hands about this need to, be, to bear a couple of things in mind. First of all, these, this third start rate stage of the, the tax cuts is already law. That's yeah. the first thing. The second thing is an Albanese government would have a whole range of progressive policies that might, and indeed I would expect, would offset this. 
But if you want to get elected, don't make yourself a gigantic sitting target the way the shortened opposition did with a whole heap of controversial and controversial, well, really, really controversial policies that, that just made them a gigantic target that indeed get shot down. Now, franking credits was the classic. The franking credits... It was credits, also a jewel in a way. I mean, it's a very sound policy. The franking credits policy was so complicated that even really knowledgeable, highly educated people needed a good 15-minute explanation. Yeah, I agree. And now, then, and, yeah, that is a loser of a policy because yeah. if it's that complicated, if people can't instantly understand it, it's, it's a gift to the other side to run a massive scare campaign, which mm. is exactly what happened. So I commend Anthony Albanese for doing the absolute obvious, as I argue in a chapter in my book, How to Win an Election. You know, which the, he may well have been reading. Well, you'd think so, having you know, <laughs> watching a few of his recent moves, and if so, good on him. Um, but the thing is, there's this stupid debate in Australian politics about whether you want to be a big target or a small target. You don't want to be either of those things. You want to be smart and strategic about policy. So, you know, Albanese's done half of it. He's clearing the decks. We haven't seen the kind of strategic framework and sharp policy focus that he's going to take to the election yet. He's he's holding that back. But it was an intelligent move and actually remarkably got terrific press from the heavy hitter commentators who are usually bagging him uphill and down Dale. I don't know if you read Paul Kelly's whole broadsheet page of praise for Albanese doing this. Uh, Peter Harcher, many others who who normally would bag him. Um, I'm not saying that's an unequivocally good thing, but it is better than having them, you know, kick well, you to death. And yeah, so, and, good and they move understood by the Alba. logic, didn't they? they? Understood the logic of it, um, but there was also a sort of a, a, a there was a conservative undertone to that as well, which is that you know these are these these progressive redistributive policies. We didn't like them. He's got rid of them. That's a good thing. There was also an acknowledgement that this is a, a political professionalism they're seeing from from a Labor opposition leader that they haven't seen for a while. And, uh, you know, I'm far from being the person who's going to say Anthony Albanese is running a perfect op- opposition operation. Uh, that's a pretty hard task. I think he's doing many things a lot better than his predecessor. Uh, I think there are more things he could do, which we don't need to go into now. But the, the big things he has done in the last week, 10 days, have really set him up to maximise his chances of winning in the policy department. Maria? I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess what I would sort of say is, uh, you know, broadly I I agree with what Chris has sort of said and I think one of the strengths of Anthony Albanese is that he sort of understands that he actually has to play or fight on the ground that he's actually on, not on the ground that he wishes he was on. Um, you know, like I know lots of people bag um, Shorten for taking all of those policies uh, to the last election, but I think I think one of the things that is sort of forgotten about that is that much of that campaign and much of that strategy was based around Malcolm Turnbull being Prime Minister, who was a Prime Minister that liked to talk about ideas. And so as an opposition leader and a leader, uh, Prime Minister, they were actually really quite well matched and that, you know, the it was viable to run a campaign based on ideas and a debate about ideas because he was prepared, that is Turnbull, was prepared to actually engage on those terms. I think the the great mistake that Shorten made um, along with Chris Bowen and, and co was not to – 
to change things up when Morrison became leader. They, if anything, they actually kind of doubled down in that mode. Um, and I think that's that's one of the, the problems that, that happened there. And, and I, I know that there are a lot of people who are really upset about this policy decision. And, I, you know, I agree broadly with Chris that, you know, um, you need to make yourself electable. And from a political science perspective, like there's a, there's a really kind of clear reason for this and it's simply baked into the electoral system, right? Um, the reality is, is that in the lower house where government is formed, uh, because we have an alternative vote system, uh, Albanese actually has to construct a coalition of a majority. Um, he can't do what the Greens do, who are elected effectively only in the Senate, where they need to get quotas, right? They only need to win uh, 14% of the population or less. Um, you know, he can't um, micro-target. He can't do what Jacinda Ardern does or other uh, people in multi-party systems do, which is to sort of micro-target to their broad constituencies. He, he is forced to build a broad coalition and that means um, dealing with these, with you know, dealing with Dealing with policies that could be easily reconstrued to, to to create like a scare campaign. And I think the other thing that I, I think has sort of been ignored in this conversation because we probably are so focused on the pandemic is that, you know, we have just racked up 1.1, I think it is, trillion dollars worth of debt. The, the idea that we're not going to have a really serious and fundamental conversation about the fiscal equation of the budget over the next decade, I, I don't think that's realistic. And so even if these tax cuts are legislated now, perhaps they will stay in train. But the idea that, that, that everything will continue as it is, that the tax settings, that the budgetary settings that we have now will be in place by 2027, I think to me is laughable. Yeah, so, that, that, that's, yeah. That's, that's a really interesting point. I think, uh, you, and I'm glad you raised it actually, because what Labor surrenders by not proceeding with curbs on negative gearing and, and, and capital gains tax concession uh, and particularly the franking credits, uh, combined with those taxes, to combine with those stage three tax cuts which come in in uh, June, July, July 1, 2024, is more than a couple of hundred billion dollars over the period to, uh, to 2030. That is a lot of money that Labor won't have uh, to spend on the sort of social programs that it also took to the last election. So, uh, and as you say, we have a whole lot of debt that's come into the system since then. So it may well be that uh, the, the situation facing whoever's in government after the next election is going to see some significant changes in terms of, uh, you know, budget repair. Uh, that is uh, is an interesting dimension to consider. But I suppose... What you're saying, Chris, is the primary goal at the moment is winning enough votes to win to form a government. And Labor has gone to this will be the fourth election Labor goes to in a row that it could lose. And you would say up until recently it was still in a position where you'd say that was the most likely outcome. It's certainly no no um, no better than sort of even at the moment. I would say, notwithstanding the government's uh, poor handling of the the vaccine rollout and so forth. So it's a very difficult balancing act that Labor has to find. Uh, as as Anthony Albanese says, uh, no one goes to an election proposing a new tax. That's right, not if you want to win. No. Now, if, if you want to do challenging tax reform, and Maria's right, the fiscal situation, and also deep changes in the economy yeah. uh, along technological lines, make it inevitable that there's going to be a major tax restructure in Australia sometime over the next several years by one side or the other. 
But history shows us that if you want to do a big, ambitious, bold, controversial tax reform, you've got to do it in government. Exactly. It's very hard to do. And if you try it from opposition, where you're resourceless, where, where everyone hates you anyway, journalists are kicking you to death all the time, forget it. It's hard enough in government. So the, the last, last government that did that was at, uh, in, in the, the Howard government in, in his second term. So it went to the 2001 election with the GST about to start and narrowly survived. It did survive, though. Well, it won the 1998 election, yeah. having put this policy to the electorate. Yeah. And then won in 2001 just despite it. Yeah. Um, so it was a, a very major, extraordinary that was a never ever tax, by the impulse. way, wasn't it? It was well, a never ever tax. It was, but to be fair to John Howard, he said never ever. But then he went to an election, not having you know, not having kidded people, he wasn't going to do it and doing it. Yeah. He then went to an election and said, "Look, circumstances have changed. I think we need to do this now. Yeah. This is my argument," and he got elected. Mind you, it was a statistical freak because Kim Beasley, as opposition leader for Labor, got fifty-one percent of the two-party preferred vote in nineteen ninety-eight, and I think that's only the second time in post-war history where someone with that bigger bigger percentage of the two PP didn't form government. Mm. But the Labor votes were concentrated in Labor seats, so it didn't translate into yeah, a, into a change in, yeah. on, on the floor of government. So, yes, there's big reform coming, but do it from government. And by the way, you know, pointy heads who listen to your podcast, and I know there are many political tragics who like this sort of thing, uh, I'm the official historian for the National Archives Cabinet Papers releases for 2000 and 2001. And the papers that were released on January 1 include the cabinet papers uh, that cover the detailed discussions and debates in cabinet over the implementation of the GST. They're cracking documents. If you go to the NAA website, you can read my essay as a historian uh, laying out the essential details, but then you can actually burrow in and read the cab subs, which are absolutely gripping. Yeah, and I think... Actually, that does sound like fun. Um, <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> um, I'll probably do that later. Um, um, but I think the other thing that you, you, we know that we tend to forget about fight back is that, like, whilst uh, it was um, proved to be, a, a, you know, a disaster for, for the coalition, um, you know, but there are other sort of structural problems with the Liberal Party at the time, you know, cough, cough, like no female candidates, that kind of stuff, you know, <laughs> which was recognised at the time as being a problem, um, being out of date, that kind of stuff. But, you know, like a lot, a lot of what was in fight back was eventually implemented by the Howard government. So they had done a lot of policy work under John Hewson. They had, you know, lost a lot of skin mm. and had gained a lot of experience. And so it meant they actually had the advocacy skills. And if you recall, one of the problems with the Rudd-Gillard government was, you know, not just internal strife, but especially in those in that early period when, the, when Rudd was prime minister, like a, a difficulty and a failure to be able to prosecute ideas. Part of that is probably just because of the you know where they sat in the policy cycle. I mean, if you if you look historically, how long it takes for people to sort of recognise that it's time to make big, ugly, uncomfortable changes? It's usually after crap things happen for a long time, and and um, and so so that's part of it. But they also tended to kind of give up on things. You know, the fam- most famously, Rudd not putting the ETS to to the electorate. You know, and and we saw what kind of happened there. So mm. it's it's. I guess this they did. Is- they did. To be fair, though, have some quite considerable body of policy that had been worked out. I mean, there was they they did you know, the, the national broadband network, 
the emissions trading s- uh, system, the CPRS, as it was actually technically called. Fantastic macroeconomic performance during the global financial crisis. Yeah. But look, I was actually in the press gallery when Fight Back came out and I wrote a biography of Houston as opposition leader in the run-up to the 93 election. And I can tell you the words longest suicide note in history were never heard during that period. Fight Back was tremendously popular. One of the reasons I wrote the biography was it looked like Houston was going to sail into the prime ministership. Mm. Exactly. His, pol- his polling was stratospheric. No one was criticising Fight Back. What happened was Paul Keating eviscerated him in the five weeks of the campaign, zeroing in on that GC- GST policy detail, which Houston was unable to respond to. And in fact, Labor picked up six seats at that election mm. that it was written off for all money uh, as losing. And there's a strong parallel here with what happened in 2019, because there's a lot of wisdom now after the event. And I, look, I, I do remember writing in the lead up to the election, so this was before the election, that if uh, if Shorten failed, if Labor failed from where they were, and bearing in mind they'd led in the polls all the way through that that whole term, effectively, of, of Turnbull's, um, and as you say, Maria, they hadn't really made any adjustment when when the government had changed its prime ministers. They just sort of effectively ploughed on as if it was the same same contest. Uh, but nonetheless, all the polls right up to the election showed Labor was going to win. And I remember writing at the time, if this doesn't work, no one will ever try this again. That is, you know, because this is sort of fight back mark too. This is a body of policy. I remember you writing that actually. You're absolutely right. It's a, It's a kind of a lesson every political generation seems to want to to reinvent. Well, it feels virtuous and you've got to be, I mean, I, I, there's a there's a strong part of me, I have to admit this, right, that I can see both sides of this and argument. And if you win, you look like a genius, Well, right? you're not just a genius, but there's a beautiful honesty to it. Uh, we're talking about a democracy. We're talking about a party levelling with treating voters like adults, levelling with them, uh, laying out a very detailed platform. At prima facie, there's a, there's a lot to like about that kind of approach. There's until nothing you to consider. like about losing when but, <laughs> you don't get to implement anything in government. Precisely, I was, that's yeah, where I was going. Yeah. Until you consider that it may, you know, just be a hollow gesture because yeah. if you don't get elected, you don't do yeah. anything for your constituents, for the economy, for the nation. That's true. We need we need to step up, step back a moment though about the 2019 election because again, one of the points I'm hammering how to win an election is after every election, people come up with their own reasons, even political experts, one or two, and they attribute it to that. Yes. In fact, Shorten's loss was so narrow, so tiny, you know, a seat either way, that was all that was in it. There's a range of reasons why Bill Shorten lost. It's not just the policy thing. That was one of many. And they affect different people in different ways all around the country. Exactly, and he could have taken that gigantic, massive target approach on policy and still won had he done another couple of things differently and better. I agree, so we yeah. shouldn't we shouldn't labor it. I yeah. mean, the point is if you want to win an election, you've got to be smart, be strategic and maximize your professionalism and performance across about 10 things, yeah, you know, not yeah, just yeah. but at the same time because politi- elections in Australia are so close so often, you can't afford to fluff one as important as make, making yourself a gigantic policy target unnecessarily. Let's take a quick break there and come back So I'm really enjoying this conversation. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cosy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Maria, Chris was just saying before the break about, you know, getting the details right, getting all of the different aspects of, of your election positioning right. You have to do all of those things effectively uh, and it may, you know, people do have a tendency to just uh, tie a result to one big thing like Shorten was unpopular or it was the death taxes uh, scare campaign or whatever it was. What do you think about the argument that there's also – an importance in this sort of aggregate of what you propose, which is to say you can get away with a couple of, that is, get away is probably the wrong way of putting it, but you can afford to argue for a couple of things that are well thought through and necessary in your in your estimation um, as long as you're not, you know, trying to do too much at once. I mean, you could argue, for example, that the 2014 budget of, um, you know, Hockey and, and Abbott I mean, it was a pretty bad budget, of course. It was a political disaster for them. But not everything that they tried to do was bad. But you you, you roll it all up together, and it was just a it was a it was a cluster, something or other. Um, and you'd you'd probably say the same thing. You could probably make a similar criticism about Labor's 2019 platform, which is to say, trying to do the ju- the adjustments to capital gains tax, franking credits, negative gearing, um, and a range of other things, all at once, leaves you. You know, it, it, it raises that question, and I think I made this point the other day on Insiders, changing the government is a is a big thing. You know, Australian voters don't do it that often. Asking them to fundamentally change the government and change the country at the same time, the compound request. So um, who was it? I mean, Hatcher wrote about this the other day that someone had uh, had told this to Albanese. Might have been, might have been um, Tony Blair had told it to him. Yep. You've got to do three things, reassurance, reassurance, reassurance. So, yeah. Yeah, sorry, no, away I you mean, go. You're, you're, I mean, you're, you're right. Like, I mean, people, most people when they vote are actually using heuristics, right? Like, so they're just, they're using uh, common sense placeholders as a way of kind of making a judgment. And, and we sort of see that all the time, right? Like people, people, the average person thinks the coalition is a, the better economic managers um, despite what, what, what the evidence sort of says one way or the other. Just like they'll assume that Labor is probably better at the state level because they'll do a better job with hospitals and, and schools. And so, you know, people talk about these sort of headline speeches sort of stuff and really it's just another way of saying they're going to use heuristics to indicate what kind of values a Labor government will bring to office um, without um, 
you know, I guess overburdening an electorate that is not kind of that interested anyway. And I guess if you sort of think about it in the reverse, like what did those policies last time around do is um, they certainly did give a good flavour of um, what a Labor government would do, right? Uh, mm. There's actually quite an explicit roadmap. But I guess for those, for most people who were not actually going to learn what a franking credit is, and I think we kind of found out the hard way that people didn't know what a franking credit was and there are pensioners who were worried about their losing their franking credits who don't own shares, right? But they were worried about losing something that they didn't even have um, is that it created an awful amount of uncertainty. And so... The word um, you're looking for, Maria, is fear. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. right? So, you know, if they if they they'll say they'll do this, what will they do next, you know? Or just even even what will it mean um to my, you know, investment property or my desire to have an investment property if I can't negatively gear, even though I might not even know how negative gearing works. And another uh, example is climate change policy. Labor actually had a pretty good chart, climate change policy but refused to put a number on it. Yeah. So leaving a gigantic uncosted policy out there, enabling the government to say anything it liked about how, how costly it was going to be and therefore how damaging it was and, going and, to be, and crazy. Looking, and looking evasive on that, I, I remember um, watching that press conference. Uh, it was in about week two of the election campaign. It was in Adelaide somewhere, I think down south near Flinders University. And, you know, it was your standard sort of daily doorstop that the opposition leader and the Prime Minister do out in the campaign trail and suddenly you could just see it. You know, you're kind of watching this with, with I had it on the monitor next to my, you know, uh, in my office there and, you know, sort of half listening to it and suddenly I could just see that uh, Shorten was absolutely skewered here because the reporter just kept saying, but what will be the cost to the economy of your, and he had no answer to it and that was an entirely predictable question. Exactly. Through and the that election was, campaign. And, that and it was, made him look evasive as well. And that was rocket fuel in the campaign that the LNP and Clive Palmer were running, mm. branding Shorten, shifty Shorten, yep. and the bill you can't afford. It yep. was gold for the government. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, because it played into all those tropes. It was the to me it was like one, why haven't you predicted that this question would come up? So that you have because the answer one of the answers was a, a very assertive rhetorical response, which is it costs more not to do anything than it costs to do something, believe me. And then you trot out all the figures that show what's going to happen to the economy over the next 10, 20 years of failing to act on climate change. All of the job losses, all of the you should consider a role as a chief of staff sometime. <laughs> well, I mean, look, no, I actually you. felt quite sorry for uh, Labor on that front because, of course, they don't know. They don't have the resources of government and it depends on exactly how you set up your policy framework. I mean, Mate, I think that's, one of the- that's completely misplaced compassion because it's just dumb to go out with an uncosted policy on a, in a major policy area, creating a massive scare opportunity and gifting it to the government to just take you down. It's nuts. Oh, yeah, I don't. I don't disagree. I don't disagree with that. But you know, like I don't. I don't think it was as. I guess I'm saying it's not. It was not as straightforward as I guess we'd like to sort of say in hindsight. And I and the government also benefited at the last election from not being seen as likely to win. And so, I mean, like they weren't actually scrutinised very heavily on their own record. You know, yeah. but we're not. Um, we're not let here alone, to re- let alone what they were doing. But we're not here really to review the 2019 election campaign, are we? We're, no. We've got to throw forward and, and look at what's going to happen now. And there's an incredibly complex situation, way more complex than last election because of the pandemic. 
Yeah, and, and that's true, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I did want to move on to the, the government's pandemic performance and, and indeed onto Labor's suggestion, which only came out today, of $300 cash payments for people who have uh, both both vaccines, you know, who are double vaccinated. Um, Maria, d- does it surprise you that we are having, I mean, obviously this is a, a woeful, woeful program that is being run by the government. I mean, there's no two ways about it. They told us all through last year, through the second half of last year, that they didn't need to hurry. It's one of the reasons they fobbed off Pfizer initially, between which time and when they went back to Pfizer, Pfizer had contracted to sell a billion vaccines to 34 other countries. No wonder we end up on the end of the queue. Uh, But they told us right through that period, the chief medical officer was saying it, the prime minister was saying it, the health minister was saying it, that this time would be used to to roll out a perfect program, a flawless um, uh, vaccination program, unpanicked like the ones that were having to be run in those other countries where the where the virus had run rampant, and that uh, you know this would be exemplary. Well, even today, even today, it's been you know just abysmal. I was talking to someone this morning who, uh, you know, the statement went out in the ACT that thirty to thirty nine year olds could now apply for the vaccine, and try getting on the website and doing it, it's impossible. Why? Because it's overloaded. Why is it overloaded? Because you know, because what's been stretched out over a much longer period is still under-resourced as a, as a program. And when she finally got her booking, it's for mid-September. I mean, really, you know, here we are at the start of August. It's, um, it's, it's pathetic. It's pathetic. It's the worst public policy failure in, since World War II. Yeah, so, what do you think, Maria, about the about the uh, the program, but also about this idea of, of incentives? I'm not quite sure why Labor decided to step into this space. Um, you know, why not just leave the focus on the government on a sort of purely political perspective? Um, because surely, um, some like incentives might be a question that you might want to look at towards towards trying to motivate people who are uh, are still hesitant after the virus has reached very close to to the sort of home fires, as it were. Mm. And that's happening all across the country right now, which is why we've seen vaccination rates um, pick up. Except for the but libertarian guess, paradise of the ACT. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> uh, I believe We're into small government rates. here, you see. That's right. Yeah, it's true. That's true in the, in the so-called libertarian paradise of the ACT. Um, yeah, but look, you know, look, I think actually what is a really what is the really interesting untold story of this vaccination rollout is actually like a, a fundamental loss of government capacity, mm. right? Like, I mean, yes, it's true that the federal government really isn't good at running stuff like or delivering programs because it doesn't deliver terribly many of them. And the health department, like, you know, they don't they don't run any hospitals. Like no. that's what the states are for. And so I think I think the real question is, why did the federal government decide that it wanted to take responsibility for actually rolling out the vaccine rather than distributing the vaccines to the health um, departments of the state governments that do this stuff all the time and actually know how to do it. You know, like whose bright idea was it to make it um, available via, you know, GPs who 
clearly have been struggling with this endless stop-go policy settings coming from the federal government um, and sort of, you know, incoherence and an inability to have supply where it's in most demand and then oversupply where it's not required. Uh, you know, I mean, to sum up what Chris said, like this is this is a public policy kind of disaster and it sort of says, it says more about the fact that like, that the federal government doesn't necessarily have the skills to run things. It seems to also lack the skills to realise that it can't run it. You know, like they don't seem to have the awareness that that they would have been better off handing it over to bureaucracies that actually know how to interface with people and how to deliver services. Well, there hasn't been a single, you're right, there hasn't been a single dimension of this that has been well handled, whether it's the public. I disagree. There is one aspect in which Scott Morrison was completely outstanding. And that is, and it's the only one, but it was a really big deal, and that was at the outset of the pandemic, shutting, having a hard shutdown of the Australian border to the world. No, sorry, I was talking about the vaccine program. Well, yeah, but I, I think, you know, it's a steaming ruin, but Morrison deserves enormous credit for that. Yeah, no, I, I agree, although it was a pretty obvious thing to do, and they left the border open to the United States long after they closed it to China. In the United States, during that period, and there was a period of uh, some weeks where the United States was the number one source of new infections in Australia and the border remained open. That's true, but it was brief. And if you compare it to the debacle of the UK, which is at the other end of the spectrum, I agree. it was, God, dare I say it, gold standard. Yeah. However, it's now substantively decayed and, and, and become porous and, because the LNP lets rich people come in and out at will, yeah. uh, including its friends, and, and that's causing big problems yeah. in conjunction well, with a lack of quarantine facilities. Well, uh, yeah, but even leaving that aside, I mean, what we were really talking about was the vaccination program. And going to Maria's question, why did the feds decide they had to run the vaccination program? Well, clearly I think the answer is they thought the states had been given a lot of credit for a lot of things that the feds had argued against through 2020, but which had turned out to be the things that delivered functional elimination of the virus. And they Scott decide, Morrison wanted the credit. They wanted the credit in the election yeah. year for the good bit, which he was delivering the, the yeah. And and when you think about it in simple terms, the vaccination is the good bit. We've we've suppressed the virus through all these hard measures, and it was difficult, and we we made wrong calls all the way through and mm-hmm. stuff. But now it's the vaccination which is delivering the solution, and we want credit for that solution. The trouble is, they they through a toxic combination of hubris and incompetence in the in the latter half of twenty twenty, they just didn't do enough. Uh, and so they so they took control, and you're dead right, Maria. I mean, the, the, the Commonwealth doesn't have great a great track record for delivery of services, and uh, it, it's uh, it's performed to type here. Really, well, uh, you know, it's 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 been pretty hopeless. So the communication's been hopeless. Even I I would argue even uh, the federal agencies have failed here in in the in the way in which they have been constantly adjusting their advice, and uh, uh, you know the the yes. um, the whole process has just led to mass confusion. It's exactly what you don't want in a public right. information campaign. You're right. It's Nikki Sava, that very acute observer of the Liberal Party, noted in a column a few months ago, Scott Morrison is fine providing he's got someone competent telling him what to do. <laughs> uh, I would add, otherwise, you know, you wouldn't trust him to run the checkbook of the Sutherland Rotary Club. He's that incompetent. How hard is it every year... <laughs> We have a national flu vaccination program. What do you do in this situation? You strap the COVID vaccination program onto the existing highly functional, regularly rolled out, very successful flu vaccination program. And you're right, he did want to hog it for political reasons. He has completely stuffed it up. 
Well, I think that sort of says everything. It's a disaster. Like, it, it's, it's a pattern here, right? Like when does he get into trouble? When he makes overtly political decisions, when he should be making governance decisions. And also, yeah, you know, point. a very disturbing pattern in terms of public service appointments. You know, unless you've ever had pips on your shoulder, you apparently can't be a newly appointed federal government departmental secretary anymore. You know, the, the military inf- mm. infiltration and quasi-military infiltration of the secretary level appointments is extraordinary. I know. And, I, and looked at, one, I looked at it one, one event recently and, it, you know, apart from the sort of pasty complexions, it could have been Marcos's Philippines I was looking at. There were so many bloody uniforms. Well, even Catherine Campbell, the new DFAT secretary, you know, she's a really big wheel, I think, brigadier general in the Army Reserve, which is one of the reasons they love her. Um, but one of the exceptions has been the appointment of the secretary of the Department of Health, who's a medical, a high-end medical specialist and advisor. He knows nothing about running a large government department or about how to get government entities to do stuff. Why would you do that? It's it's just a crazy appointment. It'd be perfect for Centrelink though, because uh, you know there's a strong record of people like that running that as well. Uh... Let's let's talk now about uh, because I think we should this car park scheme and just the general question of accountability. Um, what's this uh, this group today that has? Um, uh, announced a a report. It's the Centre for Public Integrity. It's a group made up of ex-judges and, and other uh, anti-corruption uh, experts, and they've quantified the risk of partisan corrupt funds of being something around $10 billion. That is $10 billion of funds that are open to ministerial discretion. Uh, of course, the Auditor-General in late June uh, uh, reported on the car park fund that I've mentioned a couple of times, $660 million of discretionary funds, 77% of which was directed straight at coalition electorates. Um, and, of course, this was all, a lot of this was signed off on the day before calling the last election by the Prime Minister. No process at all, no criteria. I mean, th- this really is extraordinary that, to think that in 2021 this is, this is how Australia is being run, that there is so much money sloshing around in discretionary funds for the government of the day to treat it like campaign money, Maria? Well, uh, I believe the um, author of that report actually just called this open corruption. And it's hard to argue that it's not a form of open corruption here. Like, Mm. uh, these are slush funds um, with no process. And look, this is from the party that has spent the last 25 years, if longer, telling us they they respect taxpayers' money because it's our money. But, I mean... (laughs) How how can we how can how can that be taken seriously? And I was deeply disturbed. I think it was two weeks ago or three weeks ago when Simon Birmingham essentially said that well the Australian people had to had their say. Um, so essentially, I mean, is the government seriously arguing that um, announcing a whole bunch of policies that people didn't know was corruption and then voting on it? Um, is somehow an endorsement of it, or even even worse, that like yeah, we're fine with corruption so long as every three years we have an election and we're we're affirmed. Yes, that's exactly what Simon Birmingham was saying. And to those of us who do care about good and decent and honest government, it is viscerally disturbing seeing what is going on here federally and what is going on in the New South Wales Parliament. It is true that corruption has been normalised uh, in the New South Wales government maybe less of a surprise with that parliament, mm. uh, but it's a shock in relation to federal government, which has had a long and excellent history of, of high-integrity government. Does it underline the need, urgent need for a, a federal ICAC with teeth? You betcha. But 
There's a big political caveat in this, and I don't think uh, people have dwelt on this much. If you are in one of the seats getting a lot of this money and your local member is saying, lucky you, see, I'm bringing home the bacon, it's actually possibly, in fact, quite likely, I would think, that voters would go, great, you know, I'm winning. I'm going to keep voting the person in who's bringing home the bacon for this electorate rather, well, whether, than, whether, go, whether rather than selflessly going, gee, I wanted a rational fair and fair distribution of funds. So I think, you know, Labor's actually in a bit of a tricky situation on this because it could end up just highlighting to marginal seat residents that they're doing well out of having LNP members. I think the CARP... Mm, I'm not I, convinced. I, I agree with you completely on the integrity front, but it's a question of getting into government well, and, and fixing it. But there's, but there's, there's one other no. way that Labor could approach it, which would be a very effective by comparison, and that is with the car parks rorts. So many of them haven't been built and are never going to be built, right? That's so, the point. So only two of the, them have been built. So that angle doesn't remind people they're getting good stuff. It reminds them that these people are lies, charlatans and shonks who promise things and never deliver them. So, I, you know, if, if I were the Labor members in those areas, I'd be having continuous presses standing in front of the invisible car park they were promised that's never going to get built, that was just a ruse to get them to vote LNP at that election. Yeah, look, I agree, but I do think uh, and, you know there'll be a certain amount of self-interest. You're, you're right, but without the actual car parks, that self-interest is is pretty theoretical. It's just a bunch of promises. I mean, one of the reasons these sorts of scandals don't touch the sides in ways that those of us who watch politics imagine that they would and should is because there is a sort of a resting level of cynicism about politicians generally. So when they hear that there's a that there's a certain fund that you know, the government uses to build things and allocate money um, and to make election promises to do so. And that's the government's cover for this, you know, in some ways, although, of course, it's total nonsense because you don't have the Prime Minister signing off on things the day before an election and then claim it's an election pledge. But uh, notwithstanding that, because there's a high level of cynicism out there in the electorate, people don't get all that animated about it. There's a high level of wacko. I'm liking the spending in my seat too, Mark. Well, there's a bit to, of that. There's a bit of that. Think, but let, let, I want you I, I individually know, I, just, to think about the seat, state seat of Monaro hmm. and the federal seat of Eden Monaro hmm. that you you hmm. would drive through. I can tell you often. from South Australia because you say Monaro when it's in Monero. Well, Monero, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not into the dictatorial. It has to be Monero school. Of oh, I, okay. Man. So, so you would go through those electorates often, going to the south coast and back. Not right? as often as you, but yes. So. Bungendor, no problem, new high school. Mm. Braidwood, whatever you want. Mm. You get down to Batemans Bay, there's a beautiful new bridge being built. And you could actually argue that the, that Batemans Bay bridge is necessary. But what about the even bigger Nelligen Bridge being built alongside the completely functional Nelligen Bridge? Completely unnecessarily unnecessary and totally mysterious about why you would spend, drop a billion dollars crossing this bit of the Clyde River where there's essentially kind of 10 houses and a, a pub. Mm. I mean, if you're in those electorates, you know lots and lots of money is being spent, lots of people in high vis are running around on the government payroll. I mean, that is how marginal seats are often held, by convincing people that you uniquely are the one bringing the money in, the other mob's going to starve you because they're going to send all the money to Marrickville instead. But We're it's a Labor seat. Uh Monero, 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 now you've got me saying it. Monero, Monero is, is Nationals and Eden Monero is Yeah, the Federal Labor. seat is a Monero seat. Monero yeah. is John Barillaro, Port mm -hmm. Barillaro. Yeah. 
And around that area, Andrew Constance, the New South Wales yeah. Transport Yeah, they're the two state members, That's but right. the federal member is, is uh, Christa McBain. And she won that rather surprisingly in a by-election, and as she holds it, it'll be a miracle. Labor's quite worried about its vote in Queanbeyan. Mm. And that's partly because of the Port Barrel Hour factor spinning mm. over into Fed. Look, so, I, 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 I'm know, not I'm not naive to the arguments you're making. They are good arguments, uh, but I do think that where things aren't materialising, and that, like I say, there's only been two of these bloody car parks actually built. I think we're on a unity commenced. ticket. That that's a really good way to attack it. And I and I do note that you know Brian Harridan, if you look at the, the you know the sort of he's always held out as the sort of gold standard, the senator who who. Used his leverage in sold the Senate. Sold his vote regularly. Yeah, sold order. his vote is another way of putting it yes. uh, in the Senate to, to the Howard government mm. uh, and got a lot of things for Tasmania. And, uh, you know, technically a senator is a senator for her or his state and they see that as pretty much core business, winning money from the executive for their state. And, you know, uh, that's what local members try and do as well. So it, it's as with all of these things, there's a balance. Yes, I fight for my region, but I don't. I don't use my political party to rort public funds for for nakedly political purposes. I mean that's that's what this is, and as you say, a a federal ICAC stronger rules changes to the to the um, to the job security of uh, senior public servants. That needs to happen. We need to have smaller ministerial offices with uh, you know um, uh, far fewer of them, and have ministerial staff. Accountable some by some measure to the parliament or to parliamentary committees. There's a whole range of things we could do to clean up Australian I politics. Mean, I, I also wonder, like, how many people actually know that the bridge is being built before it's actually built? I mean, honestly, like, how many people knew that the car park was going to be built in the area? Like, I, I just think that these are things that politicians think. Uh, will work, or they they hope they will work. They they get to make a, they get to have a press release, you mm. know. So they they got something to talk about. They can they can then go and do like they can reannounce the same bridge seven times if required. Mm. Uh, but you know, I think most people will ultimately vote on whether or not they think the economy's good. If the economy went bad, they'll vote for the opposition. Like, I mean, you know, that's simplistic, but. I mean, I think yeah, that's well, where it, it goes back to what Chris was saying before. I suppose there's always a multiplicity of of motivations yes. for voters, and and you're right, you're both right in that sense. Yeah, obviously, um, yeah, people will vote on things that a a, a member can explicitly point to, uh, particularly if there's a you know big bugbear about a major intersection or or there being no hospital in the area or whatever it is. On, on that on that score, there was a great um, tweet from Dan Andrews last week as he was on the ground lifting up a level crossing arm. Uh, it was the 50th level crossing he'd got rid of in Victoria since becoming Premier. And you remember his level crossings mm. promise was kind of the equivalent of Gough Whitlam's promise to sewer Western Sydney in the yes, 1972 yes. Blacktown Town Hall speech. So these things are symbolic. Uh, and, yes, we'll never know exactly the impact they have but certainly voters think more money spent in their electorates is a good thing. But, you know, is it actually spent? As you say, where's the car park? Yeah, yeah, it's just an utter joke. Uh, let's, uh, let's end on, a, on a, um, a constructive note, Chris, because you've pointed out to me this story about Afterpay um, and that being sold to this company, Square, Jack Dorsey's company, Jack Dorsey of Twitter fame. What's the significance of this? This is the most phenomenal Australian business success story, Mark. Um, two young fellas, Nick Molnar and Anthony Eisend, six years ago started a company called Afterpay. From scratch in six, to, in six years, 
it's gone to a market capitalization of $39 billion. And Jack Dorsey, who was, of course, a founder of Twitter, his company Square is has made a bid to buy for it. It's yet to get regulatory approval or be voted on by shareholders. But if it happens and it goes through, then those two young Australians will be worth together $5 billion personally uh, as just their personal cut of the deal. I know of at least one millionaire that will have been created in Canberra uh, who was uh, repping the company in, in Victoria. It, it's an astonishing achievement in six years with a very, very simple idea, very simple insight based on changing consumer preferences, on the understanding that young people don't like debt, um, and understanding how everything was moving onto digital platforms Mm. very fast. It it wasn't a sophisticated or tricky idea, Uh, very, very simple. One of the co-founders started out selling jewellery on eBay from his bedroom in Bellevue Hill. This is not someone with a PhD in particle physics a very basic person who hitched up with a very sensible CFO and uh, made a good contact early with a good stockbroker in Melbourne who was part of Bell Potter, who did an early launch. It's an astonishing business success story. You see this and you just wonder why there aren't more of them. Uh, It's got pretty much nothing to do with government policy or or any handout or grant or or helping hand. Uh, So as we sit here in Canberra, the, the city with the highest average education levels in Australia, I'm thinking, well, you know, all you people sitting in your bedrooms trading on eBay to, to pay for your university fees, just have a look at what Nick Molnar and Anthony Eisen did with Afterpay and please do some more. It's, it's great for them and great for the nation. Well, there you are, Maria. You're sitting there uh, balancing family and work responsibilities. Uh, you know, perhaps you could, uh, you know, unlock a, a, some sort of digital billionaire type future for yourself. Yeah, I'm. I'm sure I can. I'm sure I can whip that up just after I finish up here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maria Tafaga and Chris Wallace, thanks so much for uh, being with us on Democracy Sausage and friending on that uh, that very positive note on a on a week when we're talking about some pretty heavy material as well for both sides of politics. We'll see how this political ter- this political session goes over the next few weeks. Fewer car parks, more afterpays. <laughs> yeah, and more honesty in politics would be good too. That's it for Democracy Sausage. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.